Good evening. Welcome to Conversations Live. Tonight we're talking about food. Can we grow enough and can we keep it affordable? You know, the bounty of these traditional lands of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish First Nations, peoples who have lived and continue to live on these lands, has sustained the lives of humans and an abundant range of species. We're asking tonight, is that abundance in jeopardy? Or, if not, will the cost of that food simply be unaffordable? You may not have remembered this from your days of uh, studying uh, English history, but in 1798, Thomas Malthus famously predicted there was no way food could, production could keep up with population gains. He hypothesized that food production could only increase arithmetically rather than geometrically. Thankfully, he was wrong. Still, the question remains, and I think it pertains to British Columbia today, have we uh, exhausted the limited agricultural lands in combination with population growth in this same area? And how vigorously do we need to hold on to protecting those lands to grow food? In 2020, I produced a series, thanks to the support of Bayer Crop Sciences, of 12 conversations with specialists in food production and came away with a deep appreciation of the miracles farmers and agricultural specialists perform. Sadly, however, fewer and fewer people choose agriculture as a profession. So let's take that into account and consider the following. Less than 2% of Canadians make their living by farming. More and more of the land we need for farming is under pressure to be redeveloped into housing and or industrial lands. Just look to the perfect agricultural land the federal government owns in Surrey. And incredulously, the feds are considering selling it to support industrial land development. Let's also keep in mind dramatic weather events, like last year's flood that was underway exactly one year ago today. Then there is the drought we just experienced. And let's not forget, we already can't grow enough food to feed ourselves in BC. We only produce about 35% of the food we need. The rest comes from somewhere else. So Malthus may have been wrong, but is it fair to ask, are we reaching the limits of BC's ability to grow food and very importantly, keep it affordable? Just look at this clip from Robert Sake for the Food for Thought series I produced. Amy, please play that clip. clip. It's titled The Most Challenging Time in Ag History. And I, I would argue that the next uh, 30 years, between 2020 and 2050, are arguably the most challenging years in agriculture's history. Now, as the population goes from 7.6 to 9, 9.5 uh, billion people on the planet, I'm totally confident that we can feed them. The question you put is, will we be allowed to? Uh, we've done this before. Norman Borlaug and, and people like that who brought technology allowed us to increase agricultural production in the face of an increasing population from 1960 until now. Uh, but that was with agriculture adopting and embracing technologies. Today, we have a society that's largely divorced. Most people watching this uh, show right now have never set foot on a farm and would really not understand the complexities of science integration. So the question is, when you have policy that's dictated by voters who don't understand 
the implications of that policy. In other words, if you uh, make all your rules by the precautionary principle, which says that you can't have any technology until you can prove it's safe, which is nonsense because in science that's a double negative, you can never prove something safe, then you have no adoption of new technology. Between now and, 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 uh, and 2050, we've got to grow 10,000 years worth of food in the next 30 years. We have to increase food production everywhere on the planet, 60 to 70 percent everywhere on the planet which puts even more uh, pressure on exporting nations like Canada and Australia uh, uh, so we have got to be able to embrace science and for a uh, a society that largely has a predicated notion that agriculture is round fendered pickup trucks and little red barns and farmers with uh, bib overalls on it's preposterous to think that that we can we can increase production to feed a 2050 population with antiquated uh, agricultural practices doesn't a dog don't hunt so based on that and the fact that this last summer i drove through the san joaquin valley in california for mile after mile after mile i witnessed once fertile fields either dying or dead and now add in federal government policies aimed at reducing the use of nitrogen by as much as 30 percent I can't help but come back and ask, can we grow enough food to feed British Columbians? And of equal importance, can we keep it affordable? Am I scaring you yet? Amy, can you please play the Sylvain Charlebois clip on food inflation? And then let's hear from Mario Canseco about where this issue sits with British Columbians. The narrative around food inflation or food prices really changed in 2008 in Canada. Because when you, when you go back to 1980, between 1980 and 2008, the general inflation rate and the food inflation rate, they were pretty much the same, really. Uh, it, it, both followed each other until 2008. In 2008, all of a sudden, you saw this decoupling between the two. And the food inflation rate has exceeded the general inflation rate of our economy. And that's why people are talking more about food. They're noticing that food is more expensive. In 2008, the average household was spending about 9% of its budget on food, okay? Now we're almost close to 10%, three. So that decoupling is increasing again. Mm -hmm. So we are expecting the average household to spend probably 12% of, of income probably by the end of 2022, which means that food security is a huge issue in Canada. It's only going to increase. Residents of British Columbia are keenly aware of the high cost of food. More than four in five say that groceries are more expensive now than in September, a view that rises to more than nine in 10 in Northern BC. In addition, more than two-thirds of BC residents also believe that the cost of dinner and lunch at a restaurant has risen since September, and almost half feel the same way about food delivery. More than two in five BC residents say they have switched to lower-cost brands when they are at the supermarket, including practically half of women, residents aged 35 to 54, and those in the lowest income bracket. In Northern BC, more than half of residents have shied away from the brands they used to buy in order to save money. The financial challenges faced by British Columbians are not limited to the supermarket. We found out that almost two-thirds of BC residents have cut back on dining out on weekends, and more than three in five 
are not buying or going out to lunch on a weekday as much as they did two months ago. This finding does not bode well for the services industry, which was hoping to bounce back from the lean years of the COVID-19 pandemic and now seeks to welcome customers who are tightening their belts on account of concerns over inflation. Other activities are also not immune to the penny pinch. More than three in five busy residents are not going to coffee shops or getting treats for themselves or their families as much as they did two months ago. It is important to note that only 14% of BC residents say they have not got back on any of these food expenditures in September, which means that more than four in five are making sacrifices to ensure that existing financial commitments are met. For Conversations Live, I'm Mario Canseco from ResearchGo. So that's the backdrop. Tonight, we have an amazing panel. Please allow me to introduce them to you. In studio, BC's Agriculture Minister, Lana Popham, BC Dairy Vice Chair and BC Agriculture Council Director, Sarah Sash, Food Bank's BC Executive Director, Dan Huang Taylor, by BC Chef Ambassador, Ned Bell, and Vancouver Sun reporter, Glenda Limas, and virtually, University of California Davis Professor, Dr. Frank Mittlerner, and Canadian Roundtable for Sustainable Beefs, Sherry Coppathorne Barnes. Now, just before we begin, I have to express my gratitude to the sponsors who make this evening possible. They are Stem Cell Technologies, Landlord BC, Polygon Developments, BD Development, The Port of Vancouver, Investing News Network, and Research Co., as well as our media partner, The Vancouver Sun. And I want to especially thank Apogee Public Relations and give a big shout out to Oh Boy Productions, experts in live and virtual event production. Now, one last thing. For viewers online, you will see Slido, and I see that a number of you have already seen that because you're starting to fill up the dialog box. But in that dialog box, please feel free to post a question. And I'll either ask the question directly or I'll use it to help inform questions that I um, start to formulate that arise out of the discussions that we're having. So my opening question to all of our panelists is, can we meet the nutritional needs of the world we live in? And when I say the world we live in, I'm talking regionally, because I think that we have to have a fairly expansive view of what is a food network. Saskatchewan to BC, east and west, and Alaska down to California, north and south. Can we keep the cost of food within reach? Minister Popham? Please let me start with you. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here this evening. Uh, listening to the, um, the clips that you played as we were prepared to start answering questions ourselves, uh, was, it was daunting what we were hearing. But I can tell you from my perspective, um, I think there's been, uh, there's been a shift in the way we think about food, which is positive. So uh, we're very fortunate in BC that we've got about five different regions that grow different things. We've got the Okanagan as our fruit basket, uh, the Fraser Valley with um, uh, vegetables and animal production. We've got the Peace that has wheat production and grain production. Uh, and the Caribou, of course, which is focused a lot on, on ranching. Um, because of that, we've got different regions that grow different things. And we can look at our food system, uh, not just
just as a British Columbian food system, but a regional system within the province. And uh, we, as a, as what I need to do as minister, what government needs needs to do, is really to be the wind at the back of producers to figure out how can we produce more, and how do we focus in our on our domestic system. And that's really what we've been doing for the last five years. It just so happens that now, uh, you know, with the pandemic, with the, the flooding, with the interruptions, um, what we started to do is starting to make a lot more sense now uh, publicly, I think. So we're focusing in how can we increase our domestic production? How can we have a solid foundation domestically? And then how can we take advantage of the international markets? Sarah, over to you. <laughs> I think as a producer myself, I absolutely believe that that is a possibility for us. Um, when I'm looking at Rob Sake's comments, he uh, talks about technology and I think about the technology on my own farm that we're able to embrace and to use to produce milk every day. Um, we've got robotic milking system that's different than what even when I joined the farm, like I came from a forestry background, I joined agriculture and I saw all this amazing promise and the potential that there is for the industry and also all the challenges. I mean, there's a lot of work to do to be able to stay in this industry, to keep going with what we're doing and to communicate that to the public when, like you say, people are getting farther and farther away from ag. So I really do feel like it's something that we can do and feel encouraged about it, but I'm really passionate about making sure that we find ways for people to join the industry, um, to make careers in it and to be part of Feeding BC because that's something that I'm really proud to do. So what's the biggest challenge you face? There are many of them. I think farming itself is a challenge and uh, trying to layer that together with a modern lifestyle is really difficult. And uh, weather is the challenge. I mean, you'll hear farmers say that forever, but we've seen in the past year what we've come through um, with flooding and drought and all of the things on top of everything else that's happening uh, with COVID and society and it's been a real struggle to, to keep doing that and there's a lot there's a small number of people doing it so I think that is a challenge and something that we'll have to collectively work together as a society to address. Glenda, when you take a look at uh, those remarkable people who endured the floods, the drought, uh, the weather challenges over the past year, what do you have a sense of their ability to be able to start to meet our uh, food production challenges? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think they're incredible people. Um, it was one year ago that, that the atmospheric river hit. And I mean, literally a year ago, I think um, uh, dairy cows were being evacuated from the Sumas Prairie as the water was rising. Um, and it was farmers that were doing that. And there was farmers that didn't want to leave their animals and um, really just dramatic stories coming out of that situation. You really saw what um, the care that farmers have for their animals. Um, and yet many, many died. I think 100,000 chickens and 500 dairy cows. Um, and meanwhile, uh, vegetables uh, rotted in the fields, and there was also losses to perennial crops like like blueberries. Um, the blueberry bushes were damaged. Um, so I think it's it's very challenging for farmers. I think it's been a very hard year for the farmers that I've spoken to. Um, from that flooding, we went into a very wet spring um, that came with a lot of challenges. Planting was really delayed for a lot of farmers. And then, like, like it's been mentioned, the drought, um, which I think the timing of that maybe softened the impact since it happened during 
harvest, but very concerning not to have rain in BC. Um, if that had happened in the spring, it would have been um, pretty bad for a lot of people. So I have a lot of confidence in BC's farmers just from what I've heard and, and seen and talking to them. Um, but I think it's, I think it's going to be hard for them. Isn't it remarkable that they still brought the crops in this year? Yeah. Like, yeah. What does that say about them? Yeah, pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think, yeah, I think, uh, I think farmers will find a way. That's, that's what I sort of, the sense that I get, that they um, are pretty passionate about what they do. And with other challenges that you mentioned, development and inflation, the rising cost of food, um, and the inputs to get to produce our food, yeah, they're, they're going to have to rise to that challenge, I think. Well, Ned, you need them, don't you? Uh, with the Buy BC program, <clears throat> you want to support them, but you need them to have that uh, uh, determination and resilience. How confident are you that uh, we can meet the, our, our food production needs and objectives? Well, I mean, wow, that's <clears throat> a big question for me to answer as one representative of not only the BBC program but also my my culinary friends you know across the province and not just you know cooks uh, chefs processors makers of course you know farmers are my heroes fishers are my heroes um, you know without them I couldn't put food on my dinner table at home or in my businesses and you know consumption is complicated farming is hard work um, you know fishing is really hard work uh, you know I've been to Sarah's farm and I've seen I've seen what their family does, and, and it's delicious, but it's difficult. Um, you know, I believe in farmers and fishers. I believe in Mother Nature. I think we can, we, well, I know that we have to uh, support not only products that are, that are grown and fished and farmed and made and processed here in BC. Um, we need to celebrate them, uh, you know, amongst our peers and our, and our communities. Um, you know, I love what Minister Pop Popham said about the regionalization of our food system. You know, I, I was born in the Okanagan, I live in the Okanagan, but I spent years on Vancouver Island and years on the south coast of, of, uh, of this province. And wherever I am is, is where I, and what I cook. You know, I call my food currently hyper-local, hyper-seasonal. Um, it's difficult to cook that way. It's expensive to cook that way, but it's worth it. Um, and you know, we're creatures of habit. You know, when we go to the grocery store, we buy the same things often. Um, you know, I, I'm a, I have a family, I have three sons, they're hungry. Um, you know, I, I, I have to pay my mortgage and also, uh, you know, support my business. And so can we, can we grow enough food? I hope so. I, I, can, we, can we harvest enough food if Mother Nature lets us? Um, it's incredibly complex, uh, you know. Uh, all I know for sure is that I'm not going to give up. I believe in the system. Um, we just have to support that system. And, you know, this is coming from a chef who used to call his food globally inspired and locally created. And now I call my food hyper-local, hyper-seasonal because of the place that I currently live, this tiny village in the middle of nowhere, so to speak, in Naramata. Um, but when I was the exec chef of a big hotel in downtown Vancouver, I had a very diverse... A customer that had very diverse palate and so you sort of cook and uh, you know uh, cook for uh, the people that you're currently feeding and you know even in my own home I have to, three diverse palates that I have to mm -hmm. cook for so I do believe in farmers I, I, I you know they're my most important partners in the mission of food and uh, 
and I wouldn't we wouldn't be anywhere worth without them putting food on our collective tables so I agree you touched on one thing there though it's expensive and it's becoming more so and Dan you're at the food bank uh, you're starting to see uh, the effect of this what's it looking like there are you feeling like we can grow enough food and keep it affordable I want to believe that we can uh, we're seeing higher numbers at food banks than we've, we've ever seen before reports came out in October uh, that uh, that saw increases of 15% um, in the last year but um, in BC, the numbers were closer to 25% of people using food banks and the numbers of people, the, the frequency of use of food banks. The 2022 was supposed to be a year we were hoping to be coming out of the pandemic, seeing gradual reductions in the number of people who were needing to access services. But with this cost of living crisis, it's only gotten worse. So will we get more of this good quality food into food banks? I mean, we're not currently seeing it. And we're seeing a widening of the gap between the number of people who can afford to purchase that food for themselves um, and, uh, and, and the number of people who are coming into food banks. The profile is changing. We are seeing more working people coming into food banks, full-time workers, both parents with jobs, but they still need to get to a food bank to supplement some of those supports for their families. Food banking is expensive. So if a food bank has to purchase food, which pretty much all of them do, they need to stretch that money even further. And with food, food in inflation, with good quality products uh, always being one of those more expensive, the, the proteins, some of the you know, dairy products, the produce, it can sometimes fall on food banks to do what they can to provide enough food for their, for their clients. And that isn't always the, 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 the most nutritional option. Mm. So, we see, food, we see the farmers, we see agriculture as a really important partner in all of this work. Many of our food banks across the province are working very closely with that sector. And there's a, a lot of food comes in uh, through, through farmers. But there's still a great deal of work to do if we're going to make it affordable and accessible to all people who need the services. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to invite Sherry Coppathorn Barnes to join us virtually right at the moment. Sherry, you listen to what we're talking about right now, and you play not only on your own farm, but within the sustainable uh, roundtable uh, for beef production, a very important role. Can we meet the needs regionally uh, for protein, especially from cattle, uh, in Western Canada, or is it becoming uh, unsustainable, even though I know that you're part of the sustainability roundtable. You bet. I mean, it's the, the whole concept of the precept of affordability is what's going to be key in all this. What we've found is that, um, to put it in simple terms, we are being challenged from the production level to meet consumers, not only their, their needs, but their wants. And so sustainability was really driven because people were feeling uncomfortable, especially in the beef industry, about how we were producing. And so we turned around and we delivered a program that we could deliver a sustainable product to them. But with any product that goes to the shelf, we're doing nothing more than adding more layers of cost. So it, it becomes very difficult to, to define how we can produce commodities to meet the needs and wants and at the same time re remain affordable. In the case of, of BC beef production, Sadly, there's not enough beef production in that province to fully satisfy the consumer's needs. And in fact, 
Canada has to be viewed from a beef production perspective as a national entity because the, the key to keeping commodity prices affordable is about finding efficiencies. And so efficiencies come with uh, the ability to, to trade freely between provinces and internationally because we need to be able to put on the shelves products that our, our domestic market wants to buy. And in order to do that, we have only a few packing plants in this country that are capable of efficiently breaking down those carcasses and then turning around and having the supply that, that consumers are willing to buy. So in the, the case of BC producers, there's not enough producers to supply that high-end product. And so, but at the same time, you can't forget that you need to utilize the entire carcass in order to keep that price valid and, and affordable. So we need these larger national plants in order to keep that price available. And at the end of the day, all of us really do want to support our local markets. There's, there's nothing more passionate about being able to produce for our local community. But the reality is, if we're also expected to feed the world, we need that international, interprovincial international trade as well. You make great points there. Uh, but already the questions that are coming in are saying, we need to shift towards uh, plant-based food production. And that puts more pressure on you to not only uh, make sure that you are managing your ranch properly, but that you are you know, having to deal with these kinds of pressures. They're saying, well, why don't you grow something else? Why don't you grow something else on your ranch, Sherry? Well, the beautiful part of it, and this is I can speak directly from uh, even a BC producer's perspective, is that many of the places where our cows are roaming are unsuitable. And, and I know you've got Dr. Frank Mittlinger here that can speak to this much more adequately than I can. But the reality is that science is showing that beef production, if you want a nutrient-dense product that can efficiently and effectively utilize all corners of this earth, which is what we've basically heard from Robert Sake say, we need to use every option available. And therefore, you're, you can take a cow and you can turn her loose out on a prairie for six months and she's going to produce six to 700 pounds of a calf that can be used to feed the world with not a single input other than they're going to be helping to, to increase biodiversity, increase the grasslands. And it's not in replacement of losing any croplands. And in fact, we need to maintain our grasslands because there's a huge um, repercussion if you remove livestock from our environment, the cost of doing that from a greenhouse gas uh, intensity perspective is something that is, is irreplaceable. So we need livestock as a part of this solution. It's not a problem within it. Dr. Midlerner, thank you for joining us from uh, Southern California. Is Sherry right uh, in saying that having a you know, protein dense part of our diet has to be part of our ability to grow enough food? Or could we not turn those uh, arable lands into other use for growing plant-based foods that we can eat? Yeah, good evening, everybody. Good evening, Stuart. It's nice to talk to you again. Um, <clears throat> look, I, I'm a scientist here at UC Davis, and I've been looking at this issue of sustainability of the food supply chain for a long time, uh, not just regionally or nationally, but also internationally. I want to bring to the, to the front here um, a statistics that back in the last century, beginning of the last century in 1920, we had 2 billion people in the world. Today we have 8 billion, so we have quadrupled human population in a century. Now think about that. Um, 
the green revolution has really helped us to make that happen to feed all of these uh, these folks uh, who have uh, been added to our planet and uh, in my opinion we will have an we will have another green re revolution if we don't uh, we will have serious uh, challenges feeding the world's population not so much here in north america i mean yes here food will become more expensive and to some it will be uh, more difficult to purchase it but there will be many areas in the world where food will become uh, drastically harder to get uh, more expensive and uh, we will i think experience uh, quite some shortages uh, over the next few decades i do believe though that we have uh, the knowledge and we have technologies that can help us to become more efficient in, in various parts of the world. I also do believe that uh, we do need to use all agricultural land um, at the in the most effective and efficient way. Um, Sherry just uh, talked about uh, marginal land. These are the lands that you have in large parts of Canada or here in the Midwest where you have uh, really no fertile soils or not enough water uh, where it's too rocky, too hilly and so on. And you can't grow crops. And that's two thirds of all agricultural land worldwide. And also two thirds of all agricultural land here in the United States and in Canada that is not suitable to grow crops. So what we do there is we use rumen and livestock because they are capable of converting cellulose rich grasses into animal source foods. So it is actually a big deal and it is something that we need to continue in order to satisfy a growing global demand for nutrient dense foods. The question keeps coming back on uh, like from Slido, people are saying we need to focus more on plant based uh, diets. Do you keep hearing this uh, Glenda in, in, in your reporting? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Often when we write about um, yeah, beef or dairy, that is We'll get emails afterwards. Um, people are, yeah, people are looking for that. People want to do what's best. I think they 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 believe that eating a plant-based diet is better for the environment. So I think that's where it's coming from. Yeah. I so um, absolutely, we're seeing uh, in in my world a lot of a lot of people requesting plant-based um, options. I, I sort of think of it in in a number of different ways. Usually, the way I think of it is that we have, we're addicted to square chunks of big protein in the middle of the plate. And we in North America eat primary proteins, <coughs> excuse me, pretty exclusively. We need to think beyond that. Um, you know, here in BC, even if you just focus on seafood for a second, there's over a hundred different things in this province that we, uh, you know, could have access to. But could you name more than 10 of them? Probably not, because we eat four things in North America almost exclusively. But when it comes to plant-based, the way that I like to sort of uh, think about it is, let's have nutrient-dense plant-based as the center of the plate, and let's garnish with sustainable protein. So instead of five or six or seven ounces of animal protein, let's think of three or four ounces, let's think of two or three ounces that garnishes, so premium product, so it sort of you know, addresses potentially the increase in price. You're still enjoying the thing, but maybe you're just enjoying a little bit less of it. Because um, I love plant-based nutrient density. I love it. It's delicious. It fills my tummy. It gives me energy, nutrient, and, and power. But you know, I also love Wild Pacific Salmon or BC Beef or you know, all the other delicious thing that, things that 
that, that are sort of, you know, famous here in this province, but maybe just a little bit less. So does that equation add up to making food a little bit more affordable if we focus more on plant-based rather than moving away from protein? And from your perspective, Dan, uh, how do, would that help you in being able to supply food to the people who come to you know, the food bank? Um, I, I, I think about the fact that we've got people who are going, yeah, I want to eat like this. Uh, the affordability issue is becoming uh, one that affects me. Uh, what can I do? So more and more people are maybe uh, offsetting what their food costs are by going to the food bank. Um, is that part of the equation? I, I think it could play a role. Um, I mean, the, 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 the cost reduction, um, any, any, anything that can be done to reduce the household grocery budget uh, but still adequately feed the members of the family um, is something to be, is to be ex explored and embraced. Um, whether uh, that can be uh, a, make any meaningful changes to the number of people accessing food banks, because we're talking about a pretty significant shift in the way that we approach food, um, is, is, is something that would, would, would be a big question for me uh, in terms of reducing the number of people who need to access because they now have a bit more money in their pocket. Um, but, but, I mean, innovative solutions to this is, some, is the way that we have to approach a lot of this work. I realize that was a bit of a reach. Sorry to put you on the spot That's, like that. But Minister Popham wants to jump in and, and come to your rescue right now. <laughs> uh, thank you. So, I'm um, just listening to the, to the other comments. I just, uh, I, I do, in my world, also see pressures to um, incorporate more plant-based food into our entire system but in BC we're very fortunate because I believe that we can grow and process just about anything. We have 200 land-based products as uh, Chef Bell said we have over a hundred sea-based products um, and we also have the opportunity to use ingredients from other parts of Canada in our plant-based processed products. In my experience I don't see that the uh, processed plant-based products are more affordable than your more traditional uh, meat products. They have a cost uh, themselves, but we do have the ability to offer uh, just about anything anybody wants. Um, you know, the the issue of of where do we send our our beef cattle that we're growing here in BC? Uh, where do they get processed? Well, traditionally we've sent them to Alberta to the the plants that were mentioned earlier but we're trying really hard to set up our own uh, processing infrastructure here in BC and the reason why we've learned a lot of lessons over the last little while and most of them come down to shortening the supply chain making sure that food is available in the regions that it's needed making sure that we're not spending extra money on transportation if we don't have to and that creates a better economy here in BC, a food economy. We see a lot of young people wanting to get into agriculture like we haven't seen in the past. As I mentioned before, there's a bit of a renaissance. We need to make sure that the land is available for farmers to farm on. We need to have a, a secure domestic base for them to sell into. We're moving more food through our hospital system, through our institutions with procurement, making sure that there's a solid market. And then we need to market it to not just ourselves here in BC, which uh, Chef uh, Ned is 
is our ambassador for our BIBC program, but we have lots of opportunities outside the province as well. But as far as being uh, in an ideal position to produce as much as possible, we're set up for it here in BC. Glenda. To um, add, uh, today I was in Walmart actually. I have three kids and I'm trying to keep my, my grocery bill to a certain limit. And so I was in Walmart. Um, I was in the produce section and I think the only BC produce I could find there was BC apples. And I, I was just surprised at that and kind of discouraged. And so, um, it, yeah, it just, in answering that question, the affordability piece of this is also a, a big issue. Sherry, when you hear this, uh, your thoughts? It, it, I, to be honest, it's frustrating because, again, when I, when I explained the difference between consumers' needs versus consumers' wants, the science clar clearly states the exact impact that beef production and the, the, the greenhouse gas intensity emissions that it produces, and yet people automatically assume because of bad press and because of incorrect information that's been put out there in the past years, that the automatic solution is to go to a plant-based diet. Again, we got to look at this from as much as it's important to, to look at a regional perspective, Canada exports almost 50% of the, the beef product that we have anyways. I think there's opportunity to be able to increase our packing capacity. And I'm all for having BC have its ability because that's what creates a competition and niche and, and, and different expectations and, and ability to market to the, the consumers, drive the passion from producers' perspective to be able to produce for their local community. There'd be nothing better. But at the end of the day, that's not going to feed the world either. And so if we want to continue to take a myoptic perspective of what's best for our local community, then that's a good place to go. But if we have to try and start filling the supermarket shelves of Walmart, then we've got to take a little bit bigger stance of what's really real and what's what what are the things that we wish we could do. So we're only growing about or producing about 35% of our uh, food here in British Columbia. What do we need to do to be able to up that if we're actually looking at the idea that we can be self-sustaining? Yeah, our numbers in our ministry show about 45%, but uh, give or take 10%. We uh, do need to increase what we're producing, uh, definitely. Um, like I said, we need to make sure that the land base is secured, so there's land uh, to grow uh, food, to, to produce food on. We are very fortunate here in our province to have an agricultural land reserve. It's quite unique. Um, but of course, uh, we do see uh, heavy pressure for development on that land. Uh, changing regulations, making sure that it's more secure than it has ever been is critically important. But uh, I do hear people that travel around saying, you know, there's a lot of farmland that's just sitting vacant or fallow. Um, but in lots of those cases, it's being purchased and the, the owner is waiting for a chance to develop that land. Uh, we need to make it more uh, appealing for farmers to grow more and so um, we have these great programs in our ministry where we, we're trying to encourage more growth and uh, we're seeing, starting to see some pretty cool results. Uh, we have a, a, re, a replant program for hazelnuts so uh, a decade ago we were hit very hard with a blight that affects hazelnut trees and we we had a few processors and it wasn't a, it wasn't a major industry, but it was significant. Um, slowly over time, those trees started to die off. 
And um, I, I love bees and hazelnuts are the first pollen that bees can uh, access in the spring. So uh, I just sort of put that two and two together and thought we need to bring back the hazelnut industry for many reasons. Uh, it's, an, it's a wonderful product. Um, we can grow it well in BC. So we started to uh, have a replant program where we pay for a portion of a hazelnut tree if somebody wants to replant their nut yard. Uh, so that's been going now for four years. And this is the first year that the processors are saying that we're not sold out already by this time of year. We actually have enough hazelnuts in the system now to go uh, over into the spring. And that's just gonna grow and grow. Hazelnuts are an excellent uh, source of protein, but they're also a great tree uh, that withstands a lot of the climate uh, weather events that we're seeing. They're drought tolerant. They require less inputs. Uh, and the hazelnut trees out in the valley that were flooded, um, their, their success rate of survival was quite high. And so those are the sorts of things where, like I said, government can be the wind at the back of producers and find out the best ways to support them to increase that production. One sector, yeah, I'm just going to come to you and say, <laughs> you're a year-round producer. So uh, I feel like I've been sitting here quietly as we talk about plant-based and it's not really usually my um, angle to be a contrarian, but um, it really is, I think, amazing that dairy is year-round self-sustaining in the province and nationally supply managed system makes it so that all the, the most part of the dairy in Canada is offered, um, is Canadian produced and it's something that we can do well and we can do here in BC and so I think that it people of my generation and those coming behind me I think want to see choice and I don't think that choice needs to mean one or the other and I think that there is a role when we can do something well already in this province to keep doing it. Um, nationally Dairy Farmers of Canada is committed to net zero by 2050 so this is something that we're talking about all the time. Um, sustainability on the farm and improving our practices is something that we're always working on collectively um, and strive to do so I think that there is a place for that and I think that the nutrition that we can bring when you talk about food banks and I think about my experience as a farmer and the partnerships that we've been able to see whether it's egg farmers or dairy farmers or any of those types of protein farmers the amount that we can pack into food banks in a year is quite significant as well and the nutrition that's coming through those products um, into the hands of families is uh, pretty neat and <laughs> pretty special and something that I feel proud of in the province. So I think that we need to look at ways that we can make these things work together and not assume that the future of our food system is to eradicate one that we have that's already working and do something else. From dairy, we produce a tremendous number of products that can be exported, that can be uh, moved across into other regions in Canada. They have a shelf life. They would be uh, food sources that the food bank could accept, would they not? Um, so it's an important uh, element in what we're doing. Uh, Frank, when when we, you know, I'm, I've posed the question, and I know that we're here in British Columbia, and we're talking about food supply here, but do we really have the ability to be able to look at, you know, California, Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, Alaska, Alberta, as an, an, an interconnected region uh, where we can be offsetting one another's uh, challenges. And I bring that up because Minister Popham talks about bringing back the hazelnut uh, industry here, where we're seeing tremendous pressure on the almond sector in California. Is, are these kinds of dynamics possible? 
Well, I think so. Yes, I I do believe that we cannot just look at our little provinces and states, um, but entire regions uh, to augment uh, what the deficiency of the other regions are. So, for example, here in California, we are producing an enormous amount of agricultural products, 400 specialty crops, but 50% of all fruits and vegetables in the United States is produced here. 90%, 90 of all nuts, 20% of all dairy. So uh, definitely an agricultural powerhouse, but not without challenges because we have water scarcity. We have all kinds of regulations that are limiting what farmers are allowed to do. Um, while in other sectors like the health sector, techniques, technologies are promoted in agriculture, many of them are now limited. So um, I do believe that uh, our regions can work and should work together. I also do believe that our farmers need to be able to use um, modern technologies in order to um, maximize um, uh, production. And I wanted to also mention one more point that has not come out yet, um, and that is the enormous amount of food waste that's occurring. Um, here in North America, we are wasting about 40% of all the food that's produced. And not just here, but in all developed countries of the world we do. And that's largely at the consumer level, in restaurants, in our kitchens. Um, and to my great surprise, when I checked in with the United Nations FAO on this, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, these massive uh, waste and, and loss uh, numbers even apply to developing countries. So the reason why I bring this up is not just do we need to produce more food, but also we need to waste less food. And we need to think about how we can all contribute to that. Ned, you must have thoughts about that because you've gone hyper-local and you're saying let's maximize uh, the bounty that we have here locally. Can we cut down on food waste? Because it's a question that has come up from a number of people who are uh, sending in questions right now going, we're wasting an enormous amount of food. What can we do to guard against that? <laughs> I mean, that's a really difficult question to answer, you know, completely. I think, can we? Absolutely. Will we? I don't know. I mean, you know, humans are, are interesting creatures and uh, we want things to look perfect. And if they don't look perfect, we think they're going to taste differently. And of course, we know that that's just bonkers. Uh, you know, the, the a massive amount of food waste happens at the retail uh, stop on the, on the foods, you know, um, foods journey. Uh, we as chefs and, uh, you know, are, are magicians with how to use everything, you know, the, talking about whole animal production, you know, we buy whole cows and use every single bit uh, because it's expensive, but it's also an incredible, um, an incredible experience for our guests and for, for, our, for our culinary team to sort of see the entire thing, value the entire thing as one thing as opposed to just the primals. Um, you know, I think food waste is a giant conversation, that one that, that uh, probably could take an entire hour to, uh, to answer properly. Um, but, you know, I, I'm an optimist. I think we can do all these things. I guess the question is, will we? Um, you know, the, 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 I think Minister was going to say something, maybe Dan as well, but... Uh, Over to you. <laughs> you know, so food waste is a, is a major issue. Um, I remember when the forest fires were happening uh, a couple years back, I was driving through Oliver 
And Oliver is known to have these wonderful roadside stands filled with fruit and vegetables that you can drive through. They depend a lot on the tourism industry. Um, and there wasn't any tourists because we were all being told to avoid it. Uh, but because of that, if you stopped and looked behind these uh, stands, there was starting to be piles of fruit and vegetables that were rotting. Uh, and it, there was just no way to identify or to get the word out that trucks could come to pick up this food to distribute in another way. So it's a lot of, a lot of it's about distribution. Um, but I just want to tell you about this incredible company that operates out of Vancouver. It's called Goodly Foods. And Goodly Foods started out collecting food waste, like tomatoes and, and other vegetables, and making a soup. And they are now so successful that we have uh, encouraged them to go through our Feed BC program, which means that they're selling their product made from food waste in our Fraser Health System in the hospital. So uh, it takes some thinking, but it can be done. And I think you, you might be able to talk a little bit about loaves and fishes. Oh, yeah, by all means. I actually, that's just going to add to my oh, okay. six examples. Great, that I, <laughs> excellent. Um, but I, I'm glad that we're talking about food waste. Um, the numbers are jarring. We, we look at how much food is lost in the country, across BC, at all levels of the supply chain as well, all the way through to retail, to, from, to, to the consumer. And we don't have to go far to, to, to see the stories. Um, the minister just mentioned your experience in the Okanagan. I, I, some of the folks here may be familiar with the CBC's coverage on, uh, on the, um, the cross-country checkup where a, a Nova Scotian farmer was speaking to the cauliflower waste. Uh, they were losing 40% of his crop because it wasn't, he wasn't able to get it into the, into the food system because of the standards not being met. Too big, too small, a bit too creamy coloured. Some ridiculous reasons to have to plough that food back into the, into the earth because he doesn't have the resources to get it out to the folks who need it. This could go into hunger relief programs, into food banks. Uh, it could support a lot of hungry people. In fact, he said he had enough to, to feed the Maritimes. It's just one farmer. We have so many examples of some very innovative organizations. Goodly Foods is a great example. Uh, there's uh, Trendy uh, here in, in the Lower Mainland in BC. They, they extract the high quality nutrients from, from food that would otherwise be wasted and get that into powdered form, into dried form, and, and they're able to feed people with that. There's a, uh, an operation called Refeed in Langley. They're redirecting food that would otherwise maybe end up in a landfill and they are getting it to people through food banks, they're getting it to farmers to feed their livestock, but they're also creating high nutrient fertilizer through worm castings, essentially worm poop, Wow. To, to, uh, to, to mean, ensure that there's no waste whatsoever. And then you've got folks within the food bank network, like Lowe's and Fishers in Nanaimo. They have a policy where they will take in everything because they will find a way to use it. And they will get good food to people who need it. And they will find other, me other ways to ensure that that food is, is staying out of landfills, reducing greenhouse gases, and, and essentially just doing better work. So. Glad that we were talking about food waste. Yeah, Sherry, I can see you chomping at the bit there because you've talked about and you're talking about sustainability in your sector. Uh, what are you doing to reduce uh, food waste? Well, it, it, it's a big issue. There's no doubt about it. It, it. it is music to my ear to hear these companies that are up and coming that, that are, have the ability to, to take what we, we just don't use because of regulations and be able to put them to a better purpose. 
we are the trick to, to sustainability is really finding that innovative technology use uh, that I love. It was music to my ear to hear the chef talk about being able to use all the parts. This is about re-educating our society of how to get back to the basics more than anything. We've become spoiled and accustomed to these high-end pieces in, in the beef world. And the reality is there isn't a part of that animal that shouldn't be used for consumption in some way. We know that that 50% of the beef that's that's used, if you can believe it, the 50% the of the carcass is actually being wasted in many ways. And so that's why as a, as a beef industry, we have gone to looking at these export markets because there's other players out in the world that are willing to take all these pieces that we can't or can't sell here locally. And again, it brings it back to the affordability. So, I mean, sustainability is about really taking a look at the big picture and making sure that we can be as effective and as efficient as possible on every square ounce of whatever the commodity is we're dealing with. So there's the questions keep coming in uh, about the environmental footprint of agriculture. And question after question after question here that I'm seeing are people saying, can't we reduce that environmental footprint and namely cut back on uh, protein, uh, cattle and dairy cows in favor of another, another way of producing food? From each of your perspectives, is that possible? Glenda, you're looking at farmers and the environment in which they're growing in. Can we make that shift here, especially in the lower mainland of British Columbia? I, I think that there's some things that we can do. Um, it's already been mentioned tonight about that as a field in Surrey um, that the federal government owns that's not an agricultural land reserve that's been eyed for development. I think when I spoke to the farmers that are leasing that field, about a quarter of our early season local um, vegetables here in BC, the, the, the local potatoes and carrots that are produced from early spring to summer, a quarter of them come from that field. And in that a year, field. yes, and in a year like last spring, or this actually this year, sorry, um, it would have been all of them. So he said, if you have local potatoes in your fridge right now, they came from that field. And I did, and that was really eye opening to me. Um, just how valuable one 300 acre field was and how how it needed to be saved. If we wanted to have local potatoes in a wet year like it was last year or, or a quarter of our, of our local produce in a spring, um, we, we have to save that field. And so I think there's some strategic decisions that need to be made if we want to, um, yeah, if we want to be able to feed ourselves and if we want to preserve our plant, land that can grow plants. Um, because, yeah, if you're growing something in the ground, it's, it's different than in a greenhouse, it's different than livestock. It's the actual earth, the land, and that needs to be preserved from development. That's just one, one example. Well, first of all, can we save that land? Well, it's owned by the federal government right now, but I know they're in serious talks, and I know that they've felt very a, a huge amount of pressure from British Columbians who saw their food security at risk last year because of flooding, and they know the value of that land. So we'll watch those talks uh, proceed. One thing that we haven't talked about uh, yet is the value of the greenhouse uh, sector. Uh, you talk about uh, vegetables in particular, how important is that greenhouse sector in being able to produce much of the uh, of that nutrition? Well, it certainly extends the season, um, you know, which is one thing that I love and, and of course we're quite famous for, you know, tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers and uh, all kinds of other delicious things that we grow under glass. Um, 
I, I know that my menu, so I'm sort of coming at this from a number of perspectives. One is a, as a, as a, as a father and a, and a, and a, someone put in food on the table at home. And then one as a chef who feeds people over a 12 month period of time and has a menu that changes with the seasons. Um, I think that we have to continue to be willing to try new things. And those new things, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we're creatures of habit. You know, we go to the, to the grocery store, we go to the restaurant, we almost always order the same things. You know, in my restaurant, you could come over the two-month period of time and you could eat a completely different menu uh, two or three times during that two-month time because we're taking the things from the place at that moment. So, to, you know, from... from, from um, uh, a greenhouse perspective, it allows us to extend the season because we have a very short season in certain regions in the province. Um, and it's high, high density, high nutrients, delicious. Um, you know, my dad was actually one of the first hydroponic tomato farmers in the Okanagan in the early 70s. So, although I'm pretty sure he might have been growing other things hydroponically, but no. that's, for, that's for a different conversation. <laughs> my name is Ned, after all. So. <laughs> about the greenhouse industry here in BC. Uh, they are, they're fabulous and they grow incredible things, uh, but they're also very efficient as far as land use. So the greenhouse industry uh, produces 17% uh, of what we grow in BC on 0.02% of the land base. So if you think about that, we have the opportunity to expand uh, an industry that is growing a lot on a little bit of land and uh, obviously as our weather starts to be more problematic, there is the idea of extending the season, whether it's starting earlier or, or ending later. The greenhouse industry right now is cleaning their greenhouses and they're getting ready to put the plants into uh, the Tiny the little pots. Yeah. Tiny little pots. Um, many different ways that technology has improved their efficiencies over the years and they continue to look at that. But they're going to start their season uh, just in a few weeks from now and then they're going to go through the year giving us uh, a lot of 17% of what, what we grow here. So um, the greenhouse industry is something that I would love to see uh, expand. We have seen uh, some talks about vertical farming these days. <laughs> Uh, more controversial, but um, also something that if uh, if it works, we're supportive of it as a government. Um, they have a very uh, they have a climate controlled environment, so they don't harness the the sun. It's all very controlled, light controlled, um, and so we we're watching to see if that expands, but. The greenhouse sector itself has been making great strides using technology and I, I hope to be able to support them grow uh, in a bigger way. We need the greenhouse industry here. Um, in relation to this, I, I want to acknowledge the, um, the issues that folks in rural, remote and indigenous communities encounter, um, particularly in the north of the province. Food Banks BC is undertaking some work to look at the the level of food insecurity faced by, by, by folks in regions um, across the north because of the limited access to, um, to, to, to fresh produce that might be in, in more abundance in other parts of the province. It's more expensive to get this food. It's, it's not as widely available. And I think the greenhouses and, and vertical, and this is, sorry, this isn't an area that I'm overly familiar with, but I think that these are some of the 
We talk about the innovation and some of the work that needs to happen to enhance access to food, to reduce food insecurity, um, and to ensure that there is more wide variety of nutritious food to folks across the province is really, is really a, a critical thing to be considering here. And I think the greenhouses pay well. Well, I, I have great hopes for the uh, greenhouse sector. A couple of years ago, I went to Guelph and interviewed uh, Professor uh, um, Dixon, who is a specialist in uh, light spectrums. And he helped develop light that you can use in the high Arctic in a cave or in a cave in Kuwait because it mirrors the spectrum of the sun and helps to generate a photosynthesis process in, 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 you know, in, in closed environments. Frank, I'm gonna go to you and I, and I know that you, know, you live in a region where you have greenhouses, who needs greenhouses? But do we need greenhouses and do we need them in environments uh, up and down the coast? And what promise do they bring? So it depends on the region here in California. We don't need <laughs> very many greenhouses because we have a climate that really favors the growth uh, under the sun. Um, but in areas like yours, where you have uh, periods where plant growth does not occur uh, as long as it does here, greenhouses can, of course, extend the, um, the growing season. And so it definitely makes sense in, in different parts of the world. There are, however, also examples where uh, greenhouse production, for example, in parts of Spain, Portugal, uh, generates um, significant uh, challenges as well. Um, for example, greenhouse production can be quite energy intensive, and uh, it's oftentimes very labor intensive. And, uh, and here then the question comes to mind, uh, how do we generate a agricultural system that also deals with the issue of labor? Because sustainability in food production must never be been discussed without bringing up the topic of labor um, and so we have to think about how do we produce food um, and who produces the food and uh, how can we attract and retain a qualified workforce um, that plays a particular role when it comes to intensive production as is the case with greenhouses Yes, it does. I was in a greenhouse in central Alberta, a wonderful place that grows organic uh, vegetables. And I said, well, where do you get your workforce? And the owner went, Mexico? As though somehow she was saying something that she shouldn't have. But she said, I can't get people to do the work here. Uh, she said, I can't tell you the number of times that people have said to me, Oh, yeah. Um, I love gardening. I'd love to work in your greenhouse. And Okay. And then they don't even show up the next day. So the production of food is really, really difficult. So what role genomics, what role can genomics play? Amy, we have a, uh, a clip from uh, Lenore uh, Newman. Can you please play that? Genomics is playing a larger and larger role in enhancing food production right across the chain. That can be everything from better seeds for grain and oil crops to uh, engineering plants uh, specifically for working in uh, an indoor environment like a, like a greenhouse. Um, same goes for animals and 
also, it's uh, fair to say there's a lot being done on the pathogen side and the disease side as well, where we're understanding resistance better so we can use less pesticide and herbicide. Sarah, I see you smiling at that because you know that it plays a role in, in your sector in the agricultural industry. Yeah, it certainly does. I think adoption of those technologies are becoming a lot more common. Um, on our farm, we have genomic tested our entire herd and use those in our breeding decisions when we're producing our next generation of dairy cows that come on the farm. I was thinking through the comments that were being said earlier just about the thought of being more circular and being more efficient and uh, technology and all of these things that you're speaking about. It's not the first time I've been asked, oh, how come you don't just change to farming oats? Can't your family do that? And uh, 180 acres of land in the Fraser Valley would not support any of us growing oats and they wouldn't be very good ones. <laughs> so I think in terms of the, the land that we farm, we farm 180 acres and we produce five cuts a year of grass and our animals eat that grass and uh, we can make over two million liters of milk in a year with six people and three robotic milkers. So it's something that we can do on a big scale on a small bit of land in a really efficient way and we have a home for all of our manure. Um, we use it in our fields, we apply other nutrients as we need to, we soil test, we do all these things because to us this is our circle, this is our place and this is what our livelihood and our community relies on. So all those things go together to me. So one of the things that I find int quite interesting is that manure that you talk about plays an important role, especially in organic farming. Frank, how important is uh, animal manure if we want to have uh, organic vegetables? Well, if you uh, want to produce, if you want to grow crops, you only have two choices. The one is synthetic uh, fertilizers. The other one is organic fertilizers. And um, um, if you want to grow organic crops, then you must not use synthetic fertilizers. That's one of the rules uh, in the book. And um, what that means is you must source organic fertilizer. And what people, what many people don't know is that these organic fertilizers almost uh, without exception come out of some animal's butt. In other words, this is manure we're dealing with and uh, <clears throat> organic production uh, is largely dependent upon it. And so uh, we have now entered a period where because of this war in Ukraine, <clears throat> Russia, Ukraine and Belarus um, are not producing the normal amount of synthetic fertilizers and where globally we now have shortages of fertilizers and where fertilizer costs go through the roof. We now for the first time in a long time have long lines of crop producers who, uh, who want to have more organic fertilizer, meaning more manure. So there are now all kinds of um, all kinds of platforms that uh, trade animal manure and animal manure is not transported quite some distances. Sherry, I want to come back to the topic of genomics. How important is that in uh, helping you manage uh, your herd and for the beef sector? It's, it's a growing science, without a doubt. The difference between the dairy and the beef industry is, is basically the, the population of the different types of herds. Each herd has its own unique set of genomes. 
but it's very important as we grow, as, as the, the science of genomics improves, we're starting to see areas where we can see disease resistance, resistance in these animals. So antibiotic use becomes a very effective thing. Uh, when it comes to those same cows I was talking about earlier, that were grazing up the side of a mountain, we can see genomic traits. There's consistencies in the animals that are get out there and graze those tough areas and convert pounds of beef. So it's a matter of the worst part is this comes down to cost. These are things that are still quite costly in our, our commercial industries. And so we need to get the science and the technologies to be that much more efficient so that we can start applying it because there is a lot of validity to, to learning how these, that this will affect my herd. Minister Popham, is there a willingness to accept the role of genomics? Because there are people who go, whoa, genetically modified food, no. Uh, but we do seem to be willing to embrace the concept of introducing more and more of genomics research into ensuring that we get our best uh, land use, best yield, and to address uh, environmental impact issues. Absolutely. So uh, it has a major role to play. Uh, I see that when we meet with Genomics BC around um, making sure that plants have the best resistance to whatever disease is being impacted on them. You know, the, the having strong uh, genetics and genetics that allow the plant to uh, survive through situations where you would perhaps spray a pesticide. Uh, if we can reduce that, it's better for the environment. It's uh, is what the consumers are demanding these days. And so there's a huge role to play. And uh, we're very supportive of that. But um, there's, a, there's a lot of technologies that are going to help us as well. And so we see that right across the spectrum of of what's happening in agriculture and food production. Um, the dairy industry, it's just, I, I'm a huge fan of the dairy industry here in BC. I spend a lot of time on dairy farms and I'm just really proud of the decisions that they've made over the last uh, many years to uh, uh, animal welfare issues, efficiencies, having a, a smaller footprint. They're, they're doing a lot, but you see that happening everywhere. So up in the wine industry, uh, in the Okanagan, for example, uh, the technologies that are being used there, the breeding of plants, it's reducing the amount of inputs that are needed. And in the long run, that reduces the cost of the product because if you're not paying money for whatever types of input sprays, uh, et cetera, then that should be able to bring the, the cost of the product down. We even have drones now that are identifying things like powdery mildew on grape leaves before the human eye. So you can get in there and address a, a, a pretty uh, problematic disease in grape growing uh, by doing spot sprays and so they don't do the whole vineyard and so it, it's an exciting time for agriculture in a lot of ways. Well it's interesting that you mentioned drones. It's, uh, I find it quite remarkable the use of drones in agriculture now because instead of standing at the edge of the field going gee I wonder what's happening four <laughs> acres away <laughs> you pop your drone up and it flies out. Oh there it is exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're going to run out of time, as we always do, with these kinds of uh, discussions. And so much of it is, well, these people can do that, and this has to be done over there. But does the consumer not play an important role here? And so I want to go to all of you and say, well, what role can we individually uh, play uh, in helping to ensure that we're getting the foods that we need, that the industry stays healthy, and 
move forward from that perspective. And, and Ned, I think that you really, you know, are connected to this idea that we are interconnected with the system. Yeah, I want to go back to something that's important for me, and that's education. I think, you know, I'm the product of a great home economics teacher who inspired me in, in high school and really helped guide me, maybe embraced my, my addiction to delicious food at a young age and sort of said, you know, you should think about hospitality. And I have three young boys, as I mentioned, and I, I constantly thinking about a number of different programs in, in BC or around BC, farmers in the classroom, chefs in the classroom, these great programs that are getting in front of youth and teaching them the importance or at least allowing them to understand or how to um, identify what local food means in their own, you know, community. You know, I mean, you talked about Walmart. I think we all shop at some of those big box retailers. Not all of us have, you know, local farm markets just down the road from us. And so depending on where you live, of course, so many of, so much of our population is moving to these large centers, but so much of our province is in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, when you live in the middle of nowhere, of course, how do you get that food to market or how do you get that food to you? You know, I, I, I mean, I could go on and on with the 30 different suppliers that I buy from in my restaurant and how I try and get that food to my, to my restaurant in Naramata. But education is key, and I think that we, you know, is there a more important conversation than food? I mean, it's the one thing that connects every human. We have to eat at least once a day, if not three, if we can afford it, or if we're fortunate enough to be able to afford it. Many of us can't. You know, water, probably the most important conversation. Um, but we live in the best province, in the best place, in the best place. You know, we're so fortunate here in British Columbia to live in Canada, and we are spoiled rotten. And I think we need to, um, you know, share the wealth with our neighbors. And I really believe it starts in the classroom. I really do. I think our young ones just don't know where their food comes from. And... You know, I was the product of a couple of hippies who went to UBC and then moved to the Okanagan. And here I am, you know, being the proud cooker of food for many and, uh, you know, being a champion of the BBC program and, of course, you know, really standing shoulder to shoulder with farmers and fishers all over this province. But most of us don't know where our food comes from and truthfully probably don't care. Mm -hmm. And I think we actually should. And I know that that's too kind of perfect little button on the end of it, but like, if we don't, we're going to lose it. Well, Glenda, you're trying to shine a light on that. You're trying to show people uh, through the work that you're doing what it is that we're doing. Yeah, I, just something that resonated with me. Um, after the flooding, I was talking to some farmers in the Sumas Prairie, and I, sp I spoke to a Brussels sprouts farmer. And I, kind of at the end of the interview, I asked him, is there anything I've missed, anything that you would add here? And he said, can you please tell people to buy local food? And I just thought, yes, <laughs> that, that's, yeah, that's so true. Um, the other thing I think about is, is the pandemic and those early days of the pandemic and uh, when things seemed so uncertain and the supply chain wasn't working properly and grocery store shelves 
were bare. But I remember myself feeling a sense of comfort when I looked around at our food producing lands in BC and when the BC government made a way for um, farmers markets to open again and to get that bounty to people at farmers markets. And so I, that also is another thing that um, when, it talks, when we think about feeding ourselves and our, our food system that I would emphasize. Frank, from your perspective, what is it that individuals, people, you know, every day we're making decisions about food because as Ned pointed out, like, what's more important than eating? Not much. Um, and, but are there things that we can do that can help the system, that can support agriculture uh, and food supply and food security? Well, I would add to what the chef just said, that the two most important sectors of society are the food sector and the health sector. And while the one is hailed, and that's the, the health sector, the food sector is not. But um, what really concerns me too, and that's also mirroring what he just said, is that people have a remarkable, remarkably uh, limited knowledge of nutrients, of food, of food and health, of food and impact on the environment, and so on. Uh, I think that's really where things need to start. They need to start to change in anything from K through 12 and, and on to, uh, to the college kids. I teach classes here with 400 students, and these are really smart students. But the knowledge they have around where their food comes from and what it's made of is dismal. And that's a problem. We need to take food more seriously. Um, we need to make it a much more important part of society. Uh, not everybody is interested in all the details as to how it's produced and so on. But I think people need to reconnect more with food. Because if they don't, there will be negative consequences on health, negative consequences on society overall, negative consequences on our environment. I think we need to make it a priority. Sherry? From your perspective, you talked earlier about using the whole animal. Do we as consumers limit the amount that we're willing to incorporate into our diet? Because as Ned had pointed out, uh, there's these four things that we pick and we go back over and over and over again. Do we need to expand our palate? Absolutely. I mean, without a doubt, that's an instant win. I think I, I fullheartedly believe that consumers really do have to start to reconnect to their food. And, it, and that is a, a portion of it being the education side of things, really understanding the true facts behind what is, how our food is produced. But the other thing is they also have to start to remember that if you're going to get become vocal about your opinions on different things, you need to start understanding what the unintended consequences of a lot of these decisions are too. And, and if you're going to wipe livestock off the face of, of the earth because you think that's going to mitigate some climate change, you're going to be un unfortunately a little bit disappointed when you see the benefits that livestock actually hold. That environmental piece is big and you can't decouple that from the food issue. We've got to take all these positives and, and work together. This is not about pitting one commodity or one thing against each other. We need to work together as an entire food producing industry to feed the world, to feed ourselves. Sarah, your thoughts on what uh, the consumers and you know purchasers of your products can do to help ensure that we maximize the use of those products and support you at the same time? 
Well, it means a lot to us when people look for that blue cow or for some type of BC signal in the grocery store when they're doing their purchasing. Um, that's mm -hmm. really important, I think. And uh, seeking out those products and, and making a point of being intentional and being knowledgeable about them. I think in the organic sector in BC, we're kind of seeing that for producers, there's not as much uh, a benefit to, in being in it anymore and I think that if we want to keep those things and keep that variety we need to vote with our dollars at the grocery store even when it's expensive. Um, so there is that like the feed fuel fertilizer all of the uh, the F's are blending together in my mouth but <laughs> for us it is feed fuel and fertilizer and it's really expensive and if you know that then the price at the at the grocery store makes a lot more sense if you try to think about what is going into producing that product that you're paying for <laughs> ultimately like the price that you're seeing at the grocery store is less than we can actually produce it for so um, it's important context and you need to learn those things and I think the best place to learn it is from farmers and there's lots of us that are willing to share that and to connect with consumers and to kind of try to bridge this gap that's grown in our society. Dan, I know that you're dealing an awful lot with uh, a population or a group of people who are saying, I just want food uh, and I need some help getting it. But from your perspective, what do you see are things that individuals can do? Uh, that's, a, that's a big question. Uh, from an individual perspective, because if we're talking about food security, we're really talking about income in insecurity. We're talking about getting more money into people's pockets so they can afford to buy the food they need. This which is means a big point. You need to write to your elected official and say, change the policies because we need to get more money to people. But I think if we're talking about from a, uh, the ability to maybe change some of these habits and create some, 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 some inherent change in the way we approach food, I, I'd like to echo Chef Sned's comments there about education. I, 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 I'm, I'm speaking now from someone of, with privilege. I've never had to use a food bank. I've never faced food insecurity. Um, and uh, I am also a father of two young kids and I want them to know how important it is that we respect the food that we have. I, it's a constant battle to get them to eat. I hate how much food we have to throw out. <laughs> but it's one of those, one of those things that uh, I think we, we, we should certainly be adopting at the earliest age possible, introduce it into schools, help young, young people, kids, uh, understand where the food's coming from and, and the importance of, of our food systems. So I would hope that would make some level of difference. Mr. Popham, we started with you. I'd like to wrap up with you because you're in a unique position. You can actually help support uh, so many of these initiatives that we've only just touched on. I mean, the problem is we're an hour and a half into this and we're only just scratching the surface. But what is it, what's most important that individual people can do to help ensure that we're maximizing, you know, our our local produce, and but tied into a network of food suppliers that go way beyond just our borders. What is it that we have to do individually? Uh, so, I do feel really grateful to be the, in the position that I'm in to try and direct as much support to our local farmers as we can. Uh, people, when they go to the grocery store, whether they go to the farmer's market, or they go direct to farm, wherever they're purchasing their food, they need to be reminded that when you purchase BC product, 
it's making a huge difference to the farmers in our communities and it's making a huge difference to our economy in British Columbia. Um, you know, when you support something that's been grown uh, on a farm in BC, you're not just supporting that farm, you're supporting the businesses that support that farm. And so it's, it's critically important that people think about the purchases that they're going to make. Our Buy BC program uh, really allows us to tell the stories as if farmers are the rock stars. You know, they are. maybe when you go to the grocery store and you've seen a, an ad for Buy BC that features Sarah's family on the dairy farm, you'll think twice about where you're going to purchase your milk or what, where your milk's coming from. Um, we have incredible blueberry industry here in the province. And when you go and try and find fresh blueberries on the shelves in December, Maybe think about those incredible blueberries that are in our freezers that are grown by BC producers. So it's a way of, of thinking. Right now I'm hearing a lot of people talk about the, uh, the price of lettuce that's coming, that's being in, uh, brought into our province right now. Well, I can tell you that my favorite sandwich is a cheese sandwich with kale rather than lettuce. So it's about how we're thinking about our own uh, food choices. Uh, maybe, you know, I like kale anyway. It's not everybody's cup of tea, but I'm not, I'm saying add a few pickles and it'll just be fine. But um, <laughs> allowing, <laughs> allowing for uh, consumers to understand why buying BC is important. It's the most important thing you can do and it allows us to have a solid foundation here in our province. Doesn't mean we're giving up on the international market and trying to feed other areas and other jurisdictions, but unless we've got a solid foundation here, we're going to run into problems. But I feel hopeful right now. Well, that's a good note to end on. Uh, I wish that we had more time because I think there's so much more that needs to be addressed in this topic. But I want to thank all of you for uh, spending your time with us this evening online. But more, most importantly to me, the panel that is in studio and online with us. Uh, thank you very much. And I, it's like we need to do this again maybe in a few more months and touch on other topics because the list of questions that we never even got close to it has been growing. So thank you. I want to thank our sponsors. I want to thank the support of the Vancouver Sun, uh, our relationship with them to be able to deliver this uh, to you viewers is remarkable. And we're gonna, I'm going to ask you uh, to join us again next month for our town hall, Vancouver Sun Town Hall, and an evening with uh, Kevin Falcon, the BC Liberal leader, and Vaughn Palmer. Thank you and good night.